case is submitted. Well, your argument next in Denise A. Mayo versus Jacoby Lee Felix. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1996, Congress made an important change to the habeas corpus proceedings by enacting a one-year statute of limitations period. This Court is now asked to consider for the first time how the relation back doctrine under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 15C2 is to be applied in the habeas context. The warden advocates a rule for relation back is that the conduct transaction occurrence set forth in the initial petition is the core of operative facts that support the constitutional violations alleged. This rule is far superior to the Ninth Circuit's rule, which a majority of circuits have determined effectively nullifies EDPA's one-year statute of limitations. Well, of course, I, I take it the issue doesn't even arise unless the amendment is accepted under 15A. That's correct, Your Honor. And if there's been lack of diligence, et cetera, I, and, or uh, some prejudice to the State in, in the delay, the amendment, the Court just won't accept the amendment? I should clarify that. Or am I wrong about that? That uh, in Civil Rule 15A, the Court has discretion mm-hmm. and, and grants, needs to grant leave to amend after response, responsive pleading has been filed. However, a petitioner gets to file a responsive pleading, excuse me, a amended petition as a matter of right before a responsive pleading is filed. Well, it was filed before a responsive pleading. In this case, it was, it was your right. how, how long does it usually take to file a responsive pleading? Uh, it, it depends, Your Honor. Uh, it varies with case to case. In, in a lot of processes. But the state has a certain amount of flexibility in deciding when to respond, does it not? Well, Your Honor, the rule does not require the state to respond to petitions until ordered by the district court. Uh, and to get back to the question of Rule 15A, even after a responsive pleading has been filed, Rule 15A does not serve the same purposes as Rule 15C. The statute of limitations is a strict defense, which is meant to apply whether uh, the filing is a day late or a year late, whether there is prejudice or whether there is dilatory motive. To uh, ameliorate the harsh effects of the statute of limitations, Rule 15C, too, provides an exception to the statute of limitations. But that exception is limited to the parameters of Rule 15C2 itself. So when the Court is provided with an untimely claim, it determines whether or not that claim is time-barred pursuant to 15C2. Well, just before we leave 15A, Let's, let's assume that uh, we do not accept your position in this case and there's a potential for a gaping hole in EDPA. Does the state have some ability to protect itself by filing a responsive pleading and cutting off the amendments or must it do so only if it is ordered by the court to file a response? For post- do, you, do you see what I'm asking? I do understand, Your Honor. And, and for pro se petitions, uh, without counsel, the state is not even uh, aware of the existence of the petition until it is served uh, by the court. And that occurs after the court has made a determination as to whether or not a responsive pleading is required. Uh, it, it can happen that um, a petitioner will be able to amend his petition after the statute of limitations has already expired. And we would not even know of that until 
uh, after everything had been done. But of well, course, you, you have — No, please. Go ahead. I was going to say, it, on, on the scenario that, that, that you have raised, uh, in, in which you don't even know that the petition has been filed because the, you, you, you don't have a — court hasn't called for response — uh, the, the whole rationale behind the, uh, the, 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 the narrow reading, uh, is, is absent as I understand it. Because you, you, you point out that the rationale for the narrow reading is that the first pleadings put you on notice, uh, as to the case that you have to meet. And you shouldn't then have to be given an entirely new case to meet after you've been put on notice and taken whatever preliminary steps you've taken. But in the scenario that you're talking about, you have not been put on notice because you don't even know there is a petition there yet. You have not been led to, to prepare a case which is now changed. So it seems to me that your rationale does not apply in, in, in the case in which you, you do not yet have notice and hence have not filed a response for that reason. But even in that scenario, we are still prejudiced by the fact that now we have to address additional claims that would otherwise be time-barred. We, we do not get a chance. No, but that, the problem with that is that uh, a, a, the whole point of a relation-back rule is to get around a time-bar. That's why you have them. And I thought your argument was, well, you shouldn't allow them to get around this time-bar because we have been put on notice, we have begun to prepare our case, and we should not then be presented with an entirely new case. Uh, and, and so that's why it seems to me your, 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 your preparation point, in effect, is trying to, to limit a rule, the whole purpose of which is to get around the time bar. If you don't have the preparation point, you don't have an argument. Well, I, I was addressing the situation in which we, in which we can, uh, answer first, and I think that I responded in the, in the, a reply brief that that would be an onerous uh, burden on the state. Oh, it, it, it would be, but again, in the case that you're talking about, the very value that you're arguing for, i.e., we ought to be able to rely on the notice that we have given, is an argument which hasn't arisen yet because there's no factual basis to make it. Well, that, that situation would occur uh, not as frequently as a situation in which uh, we face an amendment after we have noticed your yeah. Mr. Chan, I, uh, th- there is really no way for the state entirely to protect itself by f- even by filing an answer immediately. That would protect it against uh, the automatic uh, acceptance of an amendment, but it wouldn't protect it against uh, the uh, the uh, district judge's uh, ability to grant an amendment after the response. That's right, Your Honor. There's no way to get any protection against that, no matter how promptly you respond. That's absolutely correct. And Congress could not have intended its statute of limitations rule uh, to be — to have its effectiveness dependent upon the Court's exercise of discretion under Rule 15A, which has liberally granted amendments. The discretion yes, under 15A — at least in the general run of civil proceedings, that is to be uh, liberally exercised in favor of the pleader. Is that not so? So it's a different, the 15C relation back test is quite different from the general attitude to pleading amendments. Well, we'll let, let the plaintiff or here the petitioner make the pleading alteration and then the, it will be there and the court will make a determination of whether the pleading is is good or not, but but at the 15A threshold, it's not much. It's it's not much of a screening uh, device, is it? No, Your Honor. The, the better screening device is in Rule 15C2. Uh, as mentioned, Rule 15C2 is the provision that determines whether or not a claim is time barred. And 15A then can determine whether or not the the claim can be amended in if it is not time-barred. Mr. Chan, do you think the rules of civil procedure should be applied in habeas cases after EDPA the same way they are in other civil litigation? (coughs) If the Court is referring to Rule 15C2, uh, our argument is that Rule 15C2 is not a rule of automatic 
relation back in civil terms, in civil cases, and therefore should not be applied as a rule of automatic relation back uh, in habeas cases. But what if we were to determine that in regular civil litigation it is relatively automatic? What would your position be with respect to habeas cases after EDPA? Well, my argument would be that the uh, habeas rule 11 uh, provides that to the, ex- to the uh, extent that the civil rules are not inconsistent with the federal uh, habeas provisions and rules that they may be applied. And I think that Rule 11 um, compels a reading that if you have one application that is inconsistent with EDPA's provisions and the framework of habeas corpus and another interpretation that is not inconsistent, then you must go with the interpretation that is uh, consistent with EDPA. But you have more than Rule 11. You have Section 2244, which says that an application for habeas corpus, quote, may be amended as provided in the rules of procedure applicable to civil actions. And so that- I don't think it's even a close question whether whether the rules of procedure for amendment in civil actions apply. There's no question that we, we are not questioning that Rule 15C2 applies to habeas corpus, but Section 2242 does not give any guidance as to how 15C2 should be interpreted, and I believe that guidance comes from Rule 11. Mr. Chan, can I ask you a question based on your experience? I'm sure you've had a lot of experience in this area. This particular claim was about six months beyond the statute of limitations when he asked to relate back. It would seem to me that that would normally be the case. Something about that that amount of time would be an issue because it takes time to process these. and You have to get counsel appointed, and counsel comes in and wants to amend the petition, usually, I suppose, a pro se petition. Is it, would I be correct in assuming that normally, in cases of this kind, we're talking about a delay of only a few months? For pro se petitions who have been assigned counsel, Your Honor? Well, no, normally the issue of whether or not there should be the uh, petitioner may have the benefit of the relation back normally is involves a delay of not more than, say, five or six months in the normal case. I don't have any statistics on that, Your Honor, but even if it were only five or six months, that would — You still lose the benefit of the statute. You lose an important right. But I'm just wondering about how serious a problem it is. It can be a more serious problem in capital litigation where you're dealing with many more claims, uh, which could be more complex, which uh, could require exhaustion uh, for, for the, before the Federal Review. Um, it, it just depends on the nature of the claim and the nature of um, the issues involved. I think that the statistics that were cited in the um, Justice Department study have different dates for how long cases pen, depending on the nature of the claim, whether it be for prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective assistance, and so forth. But in the capital case, you've got a specific provision in there. I mean, for, for the capital case, which is the, the one I, I agree you worry about most because there's reason to delay there, uh, Congress uh, provided specifically uh, for states to opt in, and when they opt in, they uh, they get the benefit of pretty rigorous time bars. That's true, Your Honor. And so why, I mean, isn't, isn't the answer to the capital case problem exactly the answer that Congress gave? And if a state does not want to opt in, then the normal uh, uh, amendment rules apply. The Chapter 154 provisions do set forth a fast track for uh, capital cases if the state can uh, establish certain appointment uh, procedures for counsel. However, it did not speak to the interpretation of Rule 15C2, and Congress could not have intended that the statute of limitations not apply to Chapter 153 simply because of Chapter 154. What is your definition of the test under 15C2? I mean, on, on the one side, um, the argument is, Felix's argument is, it's the entire trial episode, right? That's correct, Your Honor. And is yours that every single objection that might be made in this entire trial record, every one is a separate transaction or occurrence for purposes of 15C? 
for purpose of 15C2, our interpretation is that the conduct transaction occurrence is that core of operative facts that support the constitutional claims. That means that the objections, it is not necessarily true that one objection claim would not relate back to a second objection claim. It just depends upon whether they're closely related. Uh, in this case, the, the claims are not closely related. You have um, a claim uh, made of a confrontation, excuse me, um, confrontation clause by the admission of Williams's uh, videotaped evidence, and then you have the admission of um, evidence of a coerced confession statement. However, it takes an entirely different set of facts to establish that new claim. The successive petition rules, or the rules prohibiting successive petition, seem to treat the uh, entire attack as 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 one um, as as one legal theory as, as, as one case and it seems to me to be in somewhat intention for that for you to break it down the way you want to under rule 15 c i think that um, the respondent made a similar argument based on the race judicata claim and it was noted in the treatises that were cited that you have different intents behind um, race judicata and the relation back doctrine, and it just do not apply that way. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Come on, Mr. Chan. Ms. Blatt, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The relevant conduct, transaction, or occurrence in the habeas context is the set of facts that are asserted in support of the particular grounds for relief under habeas rule 2. That reference point best preserves Congress's intent under AEDPA to accelerate the filing and disposition of habeas proceedings. Are you, Ms. Blatt, taking the position that that is a tighter test than would apply ordinarily to the mine run of, of civil cases under 15C? I think, Justice Ginsburg, our fundamental point is there is no counterpart to tort or contract action with habeas. There is just no analog. And that is because there's not only Rule 2, which imposes this heightened across-the-board fact-pleading requirement, but it's also because those pleading rules work in tandem with all the other unique habeas rules that apply only to habeas that serve to narrow the timing and scope of habeas review. It's a, it's a little odd for the statute to say that the rules apply, and then we look to the rules, but we interpret it differently. I, I, I certainly see the common sense of your position, but I'm just having a problem with 15C2. I just don't think it's different. Both, regardless, you've got to come to the case and figure out what is the relevant conduct, transaction, or occurrence in a habeas petition. And there's the extreme view of viewing it as the entire trial or conviction, or there's another view as look at it as what the habeas rules require, and that is the prisoner to identify a particular unconstitutional conduct or occurrence that gives rise to a basis for relief. Now, under the Ninth Circuit's view, a prisoner can timely file one claim and then add any number of completely different claims after the one-year period. For instance, a timely Batson challenge could then, um, after the one year, the the claim could add claims of ineffective assistance of counsel, uh, Brady violations, or coerced confession. And to have to resolve those claims would significantly extend the limitations period beyond the one-year period. This case isn't uh, as extreme as that, is it? It has to do with evidence admitted at trial. It's... well, that's true. It takes in trial errors, but that's a lot. Ineffective assistance of counsel is a trial error, coerced confession, confrontation clause, a discriminatory selection in the jury. I, mean, I don't know if that's a trial or maybe pretrial. But it does take in a lot, and I don't think there's a close call that they relate to different actors, different time periods. Well, certainly uh, in the civil case context generally, the interpretation has been pretty broad. And I I suspect if we try to narrow it a lot, we're going to have a lot of litigation about this point. 
I'm not sure about that. This has been the rule in the majority of circuits for five or six years now, since 1999 or uh, 2000, and it hasn't generated a lot of problems. And that's because, Justice O'Connor, you articulate the rule that you want. Be as precise as you can, if you would. It would be the set of facts that are asserted in support of the grounds for relief in the original habeas petition. And the reason why this hasn't generated a problem, Justice O'Connor, is that, and the way the courts of appeals haven't really had to identify a test, is because they're so disparate in time and type. You have an ineffective assistance of counsel claim that's timely raised, and then there's discriminatory selection in the jury. How about a case? If I sue for negligence or any, any civil action we might, we might imagine, there, there might be three or four ways in which the uh, defendant has injured me. Uh, and uh, was it the, the Tiller, uh, the case, the railroad case, uh, tells us that it's a, it's a, it's a single action. And do you concede this, that you're asking us to interpret this differently and more narrowly than in the civil context? Or do you, I, or do you concede it? I concede that it's hard to answer that, Justice Kennedy, because a habeas proceeding is not a train accident. Well, and it's there hard is, for me to figure it out, too, but it, 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 it seems to me that what you're, you're, you're saying is that we have a different rule because this is habeas. In the civil context, you always have a question of do we let in other loan transactions in a breach of contract or do we let in another pattern or practice of, of similar products? I mean, the, there's line drawing when it comes up in the civil context all the time, every day in district courts. But Justice Kennedy, in habeas, there are more than ordinary principles of finality at stake that aren't — that just aren't true in any tort or contract action. And this Court said that in the Calderon decision. And the reason is because of the interest in not just the prosecutor in having adequate notice. So to complete Justice O'Connor's uh, — the answer to Justice O'Connor's question, you say — and we interpret this differently in habeas than in other cases because of finality concerns. I would be, want us to interpret it differently. Th- that would be totally acceptable because of the distinct interest in not only the finality and the interest of society and repose. Well, I'm sure it would be acceptable, but what's the authority for interpreting the rule two different ways depending on the case? Well, it's not like there's a habeas civil proceeding that we're asking for a habeas habeas proceeding to be different. There is no counterpart to a, a tort action or a contract action where it's liberal pleading requirements under Rule 8, and every single grounds for relief in a habeas proceeding, there is a requirement that the prisoner actually identify uh, all the grounds and the particular facts in support of that. And those heightened pleading requirements focus the proceeding on that particular transaction. Well, let, me, let me ask you how that would work in, in, in this case. Uh, the, the original claim is that there was a Fourth Amendment violation in admitting uh, unlawfully seized evidence. Later, uh, the petitioner wants to amend uh, to claim ineffective assistance of counsel because counsel totally overlooked the leading case directly on point on this particular evidence. Uh, is, is that arising out of the same operative set of facts, or is, or is that something different? Clearly, the facts are not exactly the same. Uh, close enough? Well, we looked at the Common Core, and I think we would argue that one is focusing on counsel's performance and the other is on police misconduct. But, Justice Yeah, Peter, but if that's, if that's the line you're going to draw, then it seems to me that, in effect, what you are saying is you can't amend. Because I can't imagine an operative set of facts that are going to be much closer than in, in the real world uh, than, the, than the two sets that I gave you. And if they're not close enough... You're really arguing for a no-amendment rule. There's amendment all the time in the majority of circuits that have applied the government's test, and it comes up in two Not scenarios. if you were the judge. No, that's not true, Judge. No, but I mean, why, why, because, why? Let me just say on the attorney ineffectiveness one, it's completely besides the point what the government's view is, because the claims are completely derivative, and the prisoner gets no benefit whether he gets the amendment or not, because in order to show uh, procedural default, he's going to have to show attorney effectiveness. And he just doesn't get anything additional, uh, one or the other, and it really doesn't matter which claim he asserts first. But the reason why amendment occurs all the time is because our rule allows the prisoner to amplify facts such that if he raises a Miranda claim or a Strickland claim and doesn't allege custody or doesn't allege prejudice under Strickland, you can amend after the one-year period. And also — So you can amend you, — you can amend your factual basis, as it were, but you can't amend your claim. Now, the way you get claims, which is really the, the d- direct text on the rule says you can add a claim if it arises out of the same, is if the transaction relates to the uh, 
I'll give you an example to an involuntary confession. Uh, you could have an amendment of a Miranda claim that arises out of that police uh, alleged police misconduct that culminated in the admission of the confession. You could also have a Messiah violation uh, that related back to uh, a Fifth Amendment claim, um, and you could have other types, too. It seems too. to me that the, the reason for the relate to, for defining the relation back the way the rule does is the interest in fairness to the defendant. You want to let him be surprised. Whereas your claim, as I understand, is really based entirely on the interest in finality and, and repose. Well, I think the interest of notice is part of it. I mean, it doesn't always trigger when the state hasn't or the federal government hasn't answered. But statute of limitations are not only about fairness in terms of preserving evidence, but the interest in repose. No, but the definition in the rule is really to to protect the interest in fairness, because the interest in repose is always the same. Well, it's to preserve the statute of limitations. But if the relevant transaction is something narrower than the conviction, uh, then the interest of repose sets in. And, I mean, the other side has, you know, the same point, is if you draw it out broad repose enough. Repose is always there. You'd always like to preserve the defense whenever you can. That's really what's at stake here. Yeah. Well, I think what's at stake is Congress's intent in passing the one year, and it's fundamentally inconsistent with that, to have a prisoner timely file one claim and then potentially add an unlimited number of claims, no matter how different and in time and Even type. if it all covers in, in just two or three months after the statute's run? Well, really not a big deal. A six-month difference is a 50 percent extension of the limitations period, which is a big deal. And Congress <laughs> wanted a — It was five months. I think it was five months. Here. It was five months. Are and you relying, Ms. Blatt, at all on the difference between the pleading rules — for civil cases generally, and habeas where you do have a, a whole set of pleading rules, separate, the habeas rules. May I answer? I think we're relying on both habeas rule two and the principles under EDPA and finality. Thank you, Ms. Blatt. Mr. Porter, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to respond to the finality concern because I think that really goes to the heart of this case. Three weeks ago, this court in Rines versus Weber unanimously approved of the stay in abeyance procedure because the petitioner's interest in obtaining review of his federal claims outweighed the competing interests of finality and speedy resolution of the federal petition. Now, Mr. Felix's case is even more compelling than Ryan's, because unlike the stay in abeyance procedure, which is just uh, the, the power, inherent power of the court to control its docket, here we're talking about the command of Congress. In Section 2242 of the Judicial Code, Congress provided specifically that the rules governing amendments of habeas petitions be controlled by the rules governing civil procedure. The only rule Well, that's true. I mean, we can accept that, but we still have to interpret what's a transaction or occurrence, I assume. And uh, is it open to us uh, in the habeas context to take a narrow view of that? Your Honor, I believe that under this Court's decisions about how you determine what Congress did, Congress operated against a backdrop of how Rule 15C was applied by this Court and the lower courts. And in 1948, when 2242 was adopted, Tiller was very recent. It was a 1945 case. It must have been, and we assume that Congress, like normal citizens, know what the law is, and they developed the rule against that backdrop. But that was, that was a rule for, for tort cases. It wasn't a rule for habeas cases. And, and as pointed out by the government, habeas cases are fundamentally different in that the notice that you give to the opposing party in, uh, in tort cases, ordinary civil cases, is very vague. It's, it's just, uh, you know, what the event was. Uh, I got hit by a train. You don't have to say wherein the train was negligent or the, 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 uh, the railroad was negligent or anything else. Just, I got hit by a train. Whereas with respect to habeas corpus, uh, there are rules that require specifying all the grounds for relief available to the petitioner. 
state the facts supporting each ground. It seems to me that those, those different uh, pleading requirements suggest that uh, what is the relevant transaction or occurrence for the one is not the same as what is the relevant transaction or occurrence for the other. That's a very good point. I'd like to address it because I don't think we hit that upon that in our briefs. Habeas, two, habeas Rule 2 does require fact pleading, but the purpose of that is not to give notice to the other party, as, as the Solicitor General and the Warden suggest. The petition is not served on the Warden in habeas cases, so they don't even get a copy of the petition. It is filed with the Court. The purpose of the fact-pleading requirement of Rule 2 is so that the district court under Rule 4 of habeas rules can perform its screening function to determine whether the petition is facially valid or not. That requires some sort of facts to be pled, and that's in the advisory committee notes. It's also the requirement of 2243 of the Judicial Code that the district court review the petition so that wardens are not disturbed with every pro se litigants petitioner have to respond. Whatever the reason for it is, certainly you can interpret the rules to say the the pleading requirement being different and much more specific. The amendment process should be different. I think that that's — Congress reasonably could have said that and reasonably could have said that amended 2242, for example, when it passed the Anti-Terrorism Act and said, generally, yes, the rules of civil procedure apply for amendments, but there should be a narrower rule. You you don't need an amendment, I don't think. If you're talking about a transaction, the question is, what is the transaction? And in habeas, it may be quite different than in other civil things. I think that the only basis for determining what transaction is, you have to look at that if, if you, if you're right, that we should have some kind of different rule for habeas than all other civil proceedings, well then it has to be grounded in the, the habeas statutes. And if, when you look at the habeas statutes, it says the confinement must be in violation of the Constitution, the, the laws, or truth. I mean, what's bothering me about this case is I don't know that the government needs to argue that there's a different rule. As I read the lower court decisions, what they've done is use the words core operative fact. So core operative facts in a tort case where the engine of train A runs into the caboose of train B is that collision. And a decision that the front of the locomotive should have been lit, as well as the back of the caboose, seems arguably at least the same operative fact, core operative facts. But to say that a witness in the middle of the trial was treated unconstitutionally seems at least arguably quite a different set of core operative facts from the fact that the defendant was questioned before the trial. Now, that seems to me related to the nature of, 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 of uh, habeas, but it still seems to be that those words, cooperative fact, the same words work differently in the two situations. And to adopt your approach also strikes me as running around the one-year statute of limitations. Now, those are my concerns, and I would appreciate your addressing them. Well, I hope I can put those to rest. On the first concern, I think that there are differences between a train wreck and habeas. Um, most of my habeas cases are train wrecks, so I, I hope that's not. <clears throat> but, but I think there is a, a, a logical difference between them. But I think when you look carefully at the case of Tiller, those really were very different facts about the head car not being lit and the the rear of the locomotive not being lit. After all, those were two separate legal claims as well. But, Mr. Porter, all that would be required to allege, if you take the Form 9 complaint, all that the plaintiff would have to say in that tort case is the, the train was negligently operated with nothing more specific than that, and then the particulars could come out later. Under habeas, you can't do that. You must set out your grounds 
And the, the, the rule two is very specific about that. So it's a very different approach to what you have to allege going in. I, I agree, Your Honor, but you, I think you need to step back and look at the purpose for the difference in the pleading rules. The purpose is, if the, if the reason was that you have to give specific facts to put the other side on notice, I would say that there is a compelling argument that that should be, that should inform this Court's decision about how Rule 15C should be read. But it's very clear from 2243 and from Habeas Rule 4 that the purpose for requiring the facts underlying the claims is not to give notice to the other side, but to allow the district court to perform its screening function to determine whether the, whether the petition is facially valid or not. If it's not valid, then the warden is not even served with the petition. The petition is simply dismissed. Can you file, I don't know, can you file a request for more, more specific statement uh, in habeas as, as you can uh, in, a, in a civil case? Yes, under Rule 81 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and Rule 11, unless application of that rule is contrary to or inconsistent with the habeas statutes or rules, then it is applied. Could we go back? Because I'm still concerned with the fact that Claim 1, which is a claim on January 2, the police arrested the defendant and didn't read him Miranda warnings properly. Claim 2 is a claim that two and a half years later, the prosecutor during the trial made some prejudicial arguments. Now, I think just common sense, do those arise out of the same core operative facts? Absolutely not. The facts are totally different. The only thing that that brings them together is that there was a single legal proceeding. And at the same time, if I adopt this approach that doesn't seem to comport with the common sense, I'm running around Congress's effort with the one-year statute. So what is your response? First of all, the response is that the statute, the rule, does not use the term core operative. No, but every lower court that has, not everyone, you know better than I, but it seems like a commonly found expression when lower courts have interpreted the rule 15 and have looked to Tiller. Is that true or not true? Not in the habeas context. No, of course not in the habeas context. I'm saying that if we're trying to apply in the habeas context the same test that's used elsewhere in the civil law, wouldn't we use the word cooperative fact or would we? I'm not as familiar with this as you. What is the answer? I don't believe so. I think that, and Wright and Miller confirmed this, that actually courts have tried to develop different tests. Is it the same evidence that they're going to use? Is it a core of operative facts? And in the end, they say there's no better test than the one set forth in the rule, and that is conduct, transaction, or occurrence. But, of course, we're trying to decide what is the transaction. Right. But the reason why is that there is a, a body of case law that determines, that, that's told us what that means. Let, let's Tiller say. tells us it means that it's the events leading up to the injury. And, and so that's how I think that, 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 Phrase has been interpreted, and that's what Congress adopted. Well, let's, let's well, what, about, what about the uh, case law that in the lower courts that Justice Breyer referred to, dealing with the core operative facts and adopting it? Mr. Chief Justice, I, I think they, they don't — I mean, I'm not aware of those, those well, cases you, you using that. say, let's look at all the cases that have followed Tilly. And — but apparently a lot of the courts adopting the cooperative fact have developed that without full regard to Tiller. No, the, the lower courts, the most usual interpretation of Tiller that we've cited in our brief that the lower courts perform is this idea of any events leading up to the ultimate injury But in the habeas context, haven't the majority of the circuits uh, had a more restrictive rule than the Seventh Circuit and the Ninth have espoused? Yes, they have. Yeah, and so I think the question is, should we follow the majority of the circuits? And, and, and you should not, because what those courts fail to do is they fail to appreciate that Congress has already spoken in two different ways. First, Congress adopted 2242, 
And when it adopted EDPA, it did not amend 2242, and it did not amend Rule 15C. And second, in death penalty cases, which, after all, is really the only set of cases where there is is an incentive to delay, Congress specifically spoke, and in 2266b3b, Congress said amendments to petitions shall not be permitted after answers are filed unless the petitioner can make a showing for a second or successive petition. Now, this is Lynn versus Murphy all over again. This is a case where Congress has spoken as to Chapter 154. In Lynn versus Murphy, it said that chapter will be, the, the amendment will be uh, applied retroactively to cases then pending. They did not do anything with Chapter 153 cases. The negative implication when Congress so specifically addresses this issue for one limited narrow set of cases, and that really makes sense in death penalty cases, does it not, when the state gives the, the, the death penalty petitioner lawyers for state post-conviction review, then all of those claims are done in state habeas. They're brought together. It fulfills the claim-gathering function of the, of the Anti-Terrorism Act. And then, very logically, Congress determined we should have a very, very strict restriction of amendments. Let, let, me, let me ask you, uh, take the two events in this case, and as explained by Justice Breyer, uh, Miranda violation in the questioning and then a, a problem with the uh, confrontation clause in, 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 in the trial two years later. Uh, let's assume that there was a 1983 civil action for those violations, and let's assume that both are actionable. Um, different, different cause of action. How, how would, how would uh, an amendment be treated in a civil action uh, based on most of the lower court precedents? And you've been, would the amendment relate back? I don't believe so. In, in civil rights actions, there are the constitutional rights at issue are the injury. So if one, if a person started out with saying their injury in the civil rights action was the admission of the evidence. So uh, you would think a, no relation back in the case I put. Because there, it, it does not relate to the same injury. In habeas, by, by contrast, the injury is the custody that's in violation of the Constitution laws and treaties. The injury, in the I suppose, in the, in the Miranda violation is introducing the evidence at the time of trial. That's correct. That's the point. You don't look at two and a half years back just to dis- you decide what happened at the trial. That's correct. And, and in so this So what about ca- the injury? What about that? that the injury, the trial's over, say, six weeks. The injury takes place at the time of introduction. Or is the injury the whole time the, the guilty verdict? Well, that's the, that's, a, that's the problem with the, with the warden's proposed test. Are these, quote, closely related claims? That is not, I suggest, a, a, nearly a bright-line rule that would help the district courts in determining what is and what uh, is not part of the same transaction. Um, so I, I don't think that that's a real viable alternative. Um, I, I, again, I think it's important for the court to go back. If it's going to create a different rule in habeas, it has to have some grounding. Well, in why why doesn't the 1981, uh, given, maybe I don't, haven't followed it correctly, but why doesn't the 1981 claim then relate back? I think uh, the injury that took place from both violations took place at the time of trial. Well, maybe I wasn't following the hypothetical closely enough. Well, but I, I, if, it. Okay. Well, if we can return to the facts of this case, I, I think these we fit comfortably within the definition of transaction because both of the rights that Mr. Felix is asserting in this habeas petition are trial rights. Under this court's decision in Chavez versus Martinez, and this court's decision in Pennsylvania versus Ritchie, both the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment rights are trial rights. Those statements, independently, when they were taken by the same police officer, did not violate any rights. They only violated Mr. Felix's rights when they were introduced in the, in the prosecution's case in chief. But the argument as to whether it was properly done, whether the ruling was proper, is going to go back to the time of the Miranda interrogation. I agree that those facts are relevant, but it's the operative facts well, that are. Why isn't that an, o- an operative fact? Well, it is the operative fact. What makes it actionable 
is that the statements were introduced at trial. Those yes, statements but, weren't introduced but, at but trial. We're you, you, you've switched. We were talking about operative facts, and now you say actionable facts. I believe those are the same principles, Your Honor. Mr. Porter, if I understand you right, you were saying that in the habeas context, the counterpart to an injury in a tort case is the unlawful detention itself. Am I right? Yes. Okay. So if that's the injury, could the habeas petitioner come in with a complaint that says, I am being detained in violation of the Constitution, period, and I need a lawyer to spell spell out the details? The petitioner could file such a petition. They've been called placeholder petitions. But clearly under Rule 4 of the habeas rules, such a petition would be uh, subject to immediate dismissal by the district court because it doesn't conform with habeas rule 2, which requires that all of the claims be alleged and all of the facts be alleged. What about the other part of what's been bothering me? To be specific about it, it sounds like a very good system. The system is, habeas petitioner, you file within a year your petition with one claim. And we'll look it over, says the judge. And if it sounds like you need a lawyer, we'll give you a lawyer, and then he'll come in with a whole lot more. And that's quite protective. But suppose you said that to Congress, that pass this thing, and you say, you know, your year here doesn't really mean a year. It means uh, a year for this uh, initial filing, and then what's going to happen is they'll give him a lawyer, and he'll come back and say the interest of justice, but really it always, almost always favors the petitioner, and the state isn't that fooled, and really it's not a problem for them. And what would that Congress have said? That's, that is very much disturbing me. I think the answer to that is that Statutes of limitations are ubiquitous in civil proceedings. But just as ubiquitous is Rule 15C relation back. They go hand in glove. And Congress in 1948, just three years after the Tiller case, when it enacts 2242, must have had on its mind that relation back goes along hand in hand in glove with the statutes of limitation. And not only that, but how relation back has been construed by the courts. So I don't think it's any surprise to Congress now all of you say, now all of a sudden that we say, oh, well, you know, by the way, there's this relation back that's going to give us maybe four or five months longer than the year. I don't think Congress is at all surprised by that. And Congress just adopted new rules of habeas uh, proceedings in, in 2004. Didn't amend Rule 15C didn't provide another rule in, in habeas, didn't amend 2242. And as far as the potentials for abuse here, uh, the Seventh Circuit's decision, Judge Easterbrook's decision for uh, the Seventh Circuit in the Elsie case has been on the, on the books for more than two years now. And I would suggest that if the parade of horribles that the warden has suggested about year-long delays and and all of these uh, potential abuses, in fact, are uh, uh, allowed by the rule that we seek here, that the uh, the warden or the United States would have come to this court and, and said, look, here are the abuses. They are happening right now. Well, in fact, Elsie's been cited twice in all in these years by the district court to allow relation back. Mr. Felix's case has not been cited at all in a published case. So I... I think that the parade of horribles is, is theoretical and not practical. As Justice Kennedy pointed out, you have Rule 15A as a backstop. And once the answer is filed, that, that really cuts off any right to file a, an amendment as a matter of right. But, the fact but I think that, that, first of all, the amendment may be made before there is a defensive plea. As Mr. Chan pointed out, the, the warden doesn't even get the petition until it's been screened by the court. The other is the, the understanding on the civil side of Rule 15A is a very liberal pleading rule. The, the threshold for granting permission to amend a pleading under 15A is very easy to pass. In Foman versus Davis, this court 
responded to that concern and said that district courts have ample authority under 15A to deny uh, uh, amendments to petitions or uh, amendments to, to initial pleadings. It said uh, uh, for uh, bad faith or dilatory tactics, but then said even undue delay. So you don't even require uh, a showing of bad faith for prejudice to the other side. So all of the concerns that the warden has raised are specifically identified by this court to give the district court the right to deny uh, uh, an amendment to the petition. And so I, I believe that those are, those powers in the district court um, are, are, are very uh, ample indeed. Plus, we have the states have their own ability to protect themselves. As, as one of uh, your honors mentioned, we have 2266. If the, if the uh, states opt in, they get the protections of 2266. States have their own uh, uh, mechanisms. All, all but six states in the Union have statutes of limitations or very firm latches uh, doctrines that will will prevent uh, the elongated delays that the warden uh, is is worried about in this case. And as far as the notice provision, uh, Justice Breyer uh, announced the unanimous opinion for the court uh, this morning. In Durakam and said, it doesn't take much to give defendant fair notice. Now, I'd like to leave the court with the, the judicial aphorism that wisdom often never comes at all. It should not be rejected merely for coming late. We ask this court to affirm the decision of the circuit court. If there are no more questions. Thank you, Mr. Porter. Mr. Chan, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Felix assumes that Congress knew about the Tiller case and assumed that Congress would know that Tiller would be interpreted in a way as to allow relation back in a situation such as this. However, as pointed out, Tiller is not a habeas case. Uh, Rule 15C2 did not even have any application to habeas cases at the time Tiller was decided. So I wanted to uh, respond to Justice Souter's earlier question about examples of relation back in habeas corpus cases, and I've cited two examples on page 27 of the uh, warden's brief. Unless there's any other questions, I have no more rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chan. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.